The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to episode 44 of Some Assembly Required, your weekly adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week, we are taking a look at Avengers number 41, Let Sleeping Dragons Lie. This issue is written by Roy Thomas, pencils by John Buscema, who is our new artist for the series, inks by George Bell, letters by Art Simic, and it comes to us in June of 1967. Starting off with the cover here, featuring very prominently the villains for this issue, Diablo and Dragon Man. Obviously with a title like Let Sleeping Dragons Lie, Dragon Man is a fairly substantial part of this story. I love Dragon Man's look here. It's very gargoyle-esque, although it is kind of funny because he's colored all gray, which for the most part is correct but you can actually see his little like running shorts which are normally a red color but here on the cover they were colored differently obviously they were drawn in because you can very clearly see them but for some reason they chose to color them differently starting off our book we have our traditional opening splash page and like many of our opening splash pages and very much in superhero tradition if you will is a training scenario and in this case the avengers are actually being particularly acrobatic i would say in their training Training session. You see Hawkeye swinging from a trapeze, Scarlet Witch is doing some kind of gymnastics it looks like, and Hercules is throwing a giant weight up and down in the air one-armed while he sits and kind of broods on uh, this wooden stool, which I'm kind of impressed this wooden stool is holding up to both Hercules's weight and this extra giant-sized dumbbell. But needless to say, it appears to be. However, Hercules' actions, and Hercules not really paying attention to what's going on, causes him to interfere with Hawkeye's training regime, and as a result, the dumbbell is knocked off course a bit, and Hercules is only just able to block it from smashing him by raising his arm. In the panel here, it looks like it actually clocks Hercules in the forehead, just kind of the way it's drawn. You can see his hand up, but it, a lot of the debris kind of blocks his hand, but the conversation, the dialogue, makes it clear that it's actually deflected by his hand. And as a result of what Hercules feels is Hawkeye's carelessness, he decides that he is going to demonstrate archery to Hawkeye, because, again, Hercules has a very highly inflated sense of self-worth. Aside from the fact that he is the son of a god, Hercules has done all of these incredible feats, and he is known for his physical prowess, his martial prowess, his fighting, and just generally being this incredible hero. So, of course, Hercules thinks he's the best at everything, and he takes Hawkeye's bow from him and draws it back so hard, he actually snaps the bow. The string apparently maintains its integrity, but the bow snaps, and Hawkeye is pretty rightly upset. Obviously, not only is Hercules showing off a little bit, but he's showing a blatant disregard for Hawkeye's property. So I, I get a little ahead of myself here. When I say Hercules is showing off, as soon as he breaks Hawkeye's bow, he picks up a pipe and uses that as a bow and fires off another pipe and really just fires it off kind of aimlessly so that it destroys some of Tony Stark's equipment. So not only did he break Hawkeye's bow, but he destroyed some of the equipment in Avengers Mansion and he doesn't really seem to care. When Hawkeye confronts Hercules about this, really the only thing that keeps Hercules from just completely losing it 
at Hawkeye, again, is the idea of guest relations, guest rules, guest laws in ancient Greek culture specifically. Since this has come up a couple times, I wanted to take a moment and talk about it a little bit more. So in ancient Greek culture, they had this concept called Xenia. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. X-E-N-I-A. So we'll go with Xenia for now. And if I'm wrong, please correct me. But the idea is that there is basic rules for guests and for hosts. And each one has responsibilities to one another. So the host has to be hospitable, provide the guests with food and drink, not interrupt them while they are eating, not badger them with questions, and in general, protect the guest. The guest is responsible to be courteous and not be a burden, and both parties, if they're able to, should exchange gifts now, the basic concept of this is the idea that in Greek culture, in Greek life, in society, there was a strong sense that the gods walked among them. And I don't mean that in like the Judeo-Christian sense where God kind of walks alongside you metaphorically. I mean, the Greeks thought that the gods would take physical form and they would visit places. I mean, take Hercules, for example. He is a demigod. That means he is a son of a mortal and a god in this case the god being Zeus. And so if someone came to your door, whether it was a stranger or whether it was a friend, to the Greeks at least, you never knew if they were a god in mortal disguise. Greek mythology is filled with these kinds of stories. So that's why you treat guests that way. And the same idea with a host, right? You never know whose door you're knocking on. It could be a poor farmer. It could be a king. It could be Zeus in disguise. Now, obviously, from a societal standpoint, this really helps to codify standards of behavior. Behavior. This is how you treat other people. Again, the Judeo-Christian code of morals has the Ten Commandments, and then obviously the Christians have things like the Golden Rule on top of that. Very similar kinds of ideas to help govern and help society function. So that's where all this is coming from. So it's not just that Hercules is grateful to the Avengers for, you know, helping him out. It's that societally ingrained idea that any one of them could be a god in disguise and that he needs to be respectful within a certain degree towards them. Now, obviously, if they are not respectful towards him, if they are violating their duties as a host, that takes on all kinds of different consequences. But Hercules, at the moment, isn't willing to be the person who violates that first. Although, he comes very close here, and really the only thing that keeps him from doing so is the fact that Quicksilver drags off Hawkeye before Hawkeye can run his mouth further. I think it's interesting here also to note that Hawkeye has tended to be the first person to pick a fight with anyone on the team. When he joined the team, he immediately picks a fight with Captain America. When Goliath and Wasp come back to the team, he picks a fight with both of them. And now he's fighting with Hercules. And the interesting thing is I don't think that Hawkeye is necessarily that aggressive a person or that much of a instigator so much as this is really just his way of feeling out who these people are and where he stands with them. And he just doesn't have a better way of doing that. Additionally, I'm a little surprised about how up and arms Hawkeye gets over the damage to Tony Stark's equipment. I appreciate the fact that he is looking out for Stark's interests, especially given the fact that, you know, Tony Stark has been very gracious to the Avengers in giving them his mansion. However, just last issue, the quantity of mass destruction the the Avengers were cleaning up because of the last fight they had in Avengers Mansion. I mean, sure, Hercules did some damage here, and he shouldn't, but when compared to everything else that's happened, eh, it's not so bad. And as the scene here breaks up, Hercules leaves to go take part in the greatest of superhero pastimes, brooding. 
few people brood like Batman, but at some point or another, pretty much every superhero broods. Scott Summers is another good one. Again, not quite Batman, but he might be a very close second place. And once again, it's interesting to see that Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver are left to kind of figure out what's going on. They're only fairly recently returned to the team, and I think they're having a hard time understanding exactly what's going on with the team lately, because things have changed a little bit, and certainly the group dynamic is not as pleasant as it has been in the past. So while we step away from the Avengers for a little bit, we are going to once again come back to Black Widow's story. Now, having thought about this a little bit and seeing all the different inclusions in the last several issues, I'm really starting to feel like this would have been a much better two or three page backup story at the end of the issue. Throughout Journey into Mystery and then subsequently into Thor, Jack Kirby did a lot of these backup stories doing various tales of Asgard. And... I think it was a really great way to fill in some of the backstory for a lot of the Asgardian characters without taking up other space in the Thor story. And I think here, the Black Widow story, the way it's thrown into the issues, I think it hurts the issues in the fact that it, it breaks up the story certainly more than I would like to see it happen. But in general, I think it does a, a disservice to the story. So I think this could have been done better as a two or three page backup. And then you can also nowadays collect them into like a single volume and have an independent story that runs parallel to the story we're telling now. DC did it with Shazam as a backup story to I think Justice League although I could be mistaken on that title but they did Shazam as a backup story for quite a while and then compiled that all into a trade. It's a really good read so I like the idea of doing a backup story. Okay having said all of that let's talk about what's going on with Black Widow. So last time Black Widow stole an experimental plane and was making her way back from the secret base in Arizona to somewhere behind the bamboo curtain and here we see Black Widow landing in what appears to be China. They certainly look like Chinese troops from the 1950s, 1960s. They're obviously Asian. The art is better than some previous iterations we've seen, but at this point, I'm getting a little tired of having to comment on racially questionable art, and I'm looking forward to the point at which it's not an issue. Unfortunately, by the way, it still pops up from time to time, even in current comics, but I'm looking forward to the point at which it's not a constant issue, because it really has been consistently problematic through the entire run of Avengers, and obviously well before that. At any rate, Black Widow lands. She's met by a couple of troops who she immediately blasts with her widow's sting, which I absolutely love because these are low-level flunkies and Black Widow straight up says, I have no time for you guys. She says, stand aside, you witless clowns. Right? She is a woman on a mission and she needs to talk to the boss man. So she goes and she finds the colonel whom escorts her deep into a secret research base and introduces Black Widow to a device called the Psychotron, which is a really cool name for a device that looks super impressive and is a little bit vague on what it does. Based on what we see next, it looks like it projects nightmare images into people's minds. But again, based on the events that happen here, where the colonel introduces Black Widow to the scientist that had brainwashed her, and then the two shove her into a chamber before turning on the Psychotron, it appears that you have to be in this chamber for the Psychotron to work. So it's a really cool method of torture, but it's not really a large-scale weapon, which is the implication based on the dialogue. The story implies that it is something that can be used 
kind of on a mass scale and something that will bring about the fall of the West. But unless this is some kind of early version, that doesn't really seem like a viable option here. Now the art here, the art is absolutely superb. It is super trippy, just amazing nightmare style art. And I really like it. And of course for Black Widow, it's absolutely horrifying. I'm uncertain of who the face that is tormenting her is supposed to be. And I don't necessarily want to know because it is just that terrible looking. Now, back in the United States, in a nearby suburb uh, of New York, it's not specified which one, but nearby, we find Hank Pym's laboratory receiving a delivery of a very large crate. And as Goliath explains to Wasp and to Bill Foster, again, love the appearance of Bill Foster. And this time, Bill Foster's colored well. He looks like an actual person, not a freaking zombie. I'm so very happy about that. But as Goliath explains to these two individuals, he is receiving the delivery of Dragon Man. So Dragon Man is an android that was built by Professor Gregson Gilbert from Empire State University. If that rings a bell, that's also the same university that Reed Richards and Dr. Doom and I believe Peter Parker attended at various times. But that is kind of the stand-in for NYU in the Marvel Universe. Dragon Man is one half of our issue's villain. Dragon Man, at this point in time, is most closely associated with a villain who we will see in a moment called Diablo. Now, Diablo is a man named Esteban Corazon de Albo, and he is an extremely long-lived human alchemist. So, what Albo did was, back in the 9th century, when he lived in Saragossa, uh, an area of Spain in Aragon, so if you think of like Catherine of Aragon, the wife of Henry the eighth same place in spain but senor albo made a deal with the devil in order to prolong his life far beyond that of normal human lifespans and in this case the devil is not just a conceptual figure if you will it's actually the marvel character mephisto whom typically has the physical appearance of the devil one of several marvel characters that actually does the other one being nightcrawler's father azazel but at any rate diablo lived for a very long time ended up in Transylvania and as is very common in Transylvania apparently all the time an angry mob chased after him because Transylvania is known for a couple things one is vampires two is angry mobs so this angry mob chased him down and buried him in a stone crypt a hundred years later the Fantastic Four show up at this same area of Transylvania and Diablo manages to convince the thing to free him in exchange for half of a potion that will turn him human and if the thing agrees to serve Diablo for a year, he'll give him the other half. In the end, Reed Richards figures out that the potion only works for short periods of time, so really Diablo's taking advantage of the thing, so the thing no longer chooses to work with him. Eventually, Diablo will help Professor Gilbert take Dragon Man, who is an android, and use his alchemy to make him a living creature. However, in the process, the potion will be lost, and that will come into play here later in the issue. Uh, the Avengers were able to disable Dragon Man by blasting him with ultraviolet light and effectively disable him, make him go dormant, if you will. And at that point, the government took possession of Dragon Man, and Goliath has 
convinced the government to allow him to take possession of Dragon Man and perform research on Dragon Man. I would really like to know why the government thinks this is a good plan, because the reality here is that while we the reader know that Goliath is Hank Pym is this super scientist, at this point all of the Avengers pretty much still have their secret identities intact. The notable exception really is Captain America, because Captain America has always been Steve Rogers and Captain America. It's not really a secret there. But at this point, the government doesn't know that Hank Pym, super scientist, super biochemist, is Goliath. Obviously, they have figured that he is some kind of scientist, but he could be a complete quack for all they know. They have no information about him other than he obviously has been able to make himself big and small, and to be honest, they don't even have proof that he's the one who made that possible. It's just that he uses that technology. So, I don't quite understand why the government gave Dragon Man to Goliath. It makes sense from a certain perspective as the reader, but if you place yourself in the actual Marvel Universe, it makes absolutely no sense. So while Hank Pym is explaining all of this to Wasp and to Bill Foster, we see a gentleman in a coat and a fedora pull a weapon out of his coat and turn the building across the street from this lab into solid gold. Now, if you're at all familiar with the concept of alchemy, you will realize that this was one of the major goals of alchemy, was to turn otherwise worthless objects, straw, lead, whatever, into gold. And as I mentioned before, Diablo is in fact an alchemist, and a rather good one. So for those of you playing at home, putting two and two together, Yes, this is in fact Diablo, and he has turned the building across the street into gold as a distraction. He wants to get Goliath, Wasp, and Ben Foster out of the lab so that he can gain access to Dragon Man. And his plan works. Obviously, a building of solid gold attracts a giant crowd, all of whom want to break pieces off, and so... Goliath and Wasp go to investigate. However, their appearance begins to cause an even greater disturbance, so Goliath recommends that they shrink down to ant size. And this is spectacular, because while I appreciate his thought process on this, there were unintended consequences with him sh shrinking to ant size in a very large crowd, and the issue does a great job of bringing that up, that he has repeatedly almost stepped on. So, Goliath realizes that this situation is somewhat out of control, so he calls in the rest of the Avengers to help figure out what's going on, and in fact, Goliath actually correctly guesses that this whole situation was probably manufactured for the express purpose of drawing he and Wasp away from Dragon Man. So, the rest of the Avengers mobilize. However, Hercules, who last issue was pretty gung-ho about joining them on their adventure, given the disagreement that they just had, Hercules is not particularly game to join the Avengers this time, and really, nor is he obligated to. Right? He is their guest, he is not a member of the team at this point, though we are quickly closing on the point at which he will become a member of the team. So, the Prince of Power decides to sit this one out, and the rest of the Avengers begin to make their way towards Goliath's lab. Of course, because we need to have conflict in this issue, the Avengers will be just a hair late. Diablo throws aside Bill Foster with what he refers to as a Dyna-Disc and makes his way and, using said Dyna-Disc, reanimates Dragon Man. Unfortunately for Goliath, he is just a second too late and is unable to stop Diablo from reanimating Dragon Man. However, he does quickly attempt to gain control of the situation by 
attacking Diablo. And Diablo pulls out what he refers to as his Auric Ray, which is the gun he used to turn the building to gold. Diablo calls his weapon the Auric Ray because it turns things into gold. Now, in Latin, the word for gold is Aurum, A-U-R-U-M, which is also why the chemical symbol for gold is A-U, so the word Auric is derived from the Latin Aurum. Now, thankfully for Goliath, Diablo doesn't get to use his Auric Ray on him because Wasp is able to blast it out of his hand. However, he still has the Dyna Disc and he quickly takes care of Wasp. So at this point, it is a face-off between Dragon Man and Goliath. Now, I will be honest to start here, my money was kind of on Goliath. You know, I mean, Dragon Man is very strong, I mean, just by looking at him, but Goliath is not the brute that Dragon Man is. Dragon Man is powerful, but lacks any kind of finesse. Now, we've talked in previous episodes about the fact that Goliath is not the same kind of trained finesse fighter that Cap is, but he's still more trained than Dragon Man. So he's not going to disable a more powerful foe the same way that Captain America would, but when you're fighting what amounts to a mindless creature, a mindless beast, some skill, some training does come into play. It makes a difference, but unfortunately for Goliath, he just doesn't hold up. Now, again, this is John Basima's first Avengers issue, and he does an absolutely amazing job at conveying the physical weight of the characters as they fight and the forces involved. A guy who's 10 feet tall and a creature like Dragon Man, I mean, you're going to be feeling the hits from across the room. The impacts are just going to have so much force behind them. It's going to be staggering. And he does a great job of conveying that through the art, through the book. I don't ever feel like these are two lightweights fighting. These are two huge guys throwing down and just beating on each other with incredible amounts of force. But again, I mean, Dragon Man is just that much more powerful and he is able to overcome Goliath. Now, just as Goliath starts to falter, thankfully for him, the rest of the Avengers show up. Again, per our standard procedure, Quicksilver is the first one to engage Dragon Man. Although in this case, he's actually not stunned or injured or anything like that. He does, however, realize that while Diablo cannot see Quicksilver. Dragon Man obviously can, and I think that owes to the fact that Dragon Man is an android, so he has upgraded senses from that which would normally accompany a human being. It also allows Hawkeye to get a quick attack in and momentarily blind Dragon Man with a tear gas arrow, though I have to wonder exactly what a tear gas arrow would do against a creature like Dragon Man, an artificial creature. In theory, there has to be some kind of biological reaction for tear gas to really work, and I don't see that being present in a creature like Dragon Man. Dragon Man then shows off a little bit, and I love this part because it's a cool little detail, and swipes Hawkeye with his prehensile tail. I really like that part because it's just, it's not something I would have thought of, but it absolutely works. Now, thankfully for Hawkeye, Scarlet Witch is there to hex the prehensile tail and make it drop Hawkeye. And at this point, Diablo is done trying to deal with the situation in its current shape. Eventually, I think he's right that Dragon Man would have won out, or Dragon Man certainly had a high chance of winning out, but he doesn't have time for messing around with this. He has other things he needs to do. So Diablo takes his Auric Ray and turns a significant portion of the roof into gold. And this is a really really clever trick. Anyone who has any familiarity with metals or metallurgy, jewelry, anything like that, realizes that gold is a very 
soft metal. It's also very heavy. So turning that portion of the roof into gold makes it so the rest of the roof can't hold up the new weight of the gold roof. And the gold roof itself can't support its own weight because of how soft gold is. It doesn't tend to, in large quantities, it wouldn't hold up well like that. So it comes crashing down on the Avengers, trapping them underneath, and allowing Diablo to escape. Now, part of the reason that Diablo does this, other than it's a really good idea, is the fact that he doesn't have any idea what effect the Auric Ray will have on biological tissue, on a living creature. And I was disappointed by this, and a little surprised. I would think that if he developed a weapon like this, he would test it to its full extent. I mean, you know, you don't necessarily test that on people. You know, test that on a rat. Lab rats. There's a term for them, because you test things on them. It doesn't have to be pretty, right? It could be gruesome and horrifying and terrible, but I would expect that you would figure out what the effect of this weapon is. But apparently Diablo didn't. At any rate, with the Avengers presumably trapped or killed beneath this mass of gold and rubble, Diablo picks up Wasp, instructs Dragon Man to take Goliath, and they fly off to finish the rest of Diablo's business. Recapturing Dragon Man was just the first step, and as we will see next issue, there is a significantly more involved plot, because, you know, superhero villain, but there is a significantly more involved plot that we will unravel next issue. Overall, I really liked the issue. I think Dragon Man is a great character, and he will pop up all over the place in the Marvel Universe. Most recently, he has been a part of Fantastic Four. He joined that book in Jonathan Hickman's run on FF, which was short for Future Foundation, in which Valeria actually reprogrammed Dragon Man into a hyper-intelligent being, and he actually goes around with several of the kids from the Future Foundation, basically looking after them, babysitting them. It's it's a very different Dragon Man, but it's a really spectacular character, and I, I appreciate the idea of what you can do with a character like this that could otherwise just be kind of a big, brutal throwaway and in a lot of ways was for a very long time. Diablo's an interesting character, I think has a lot of potential. Interestingly enough, in an interview with Chris Hardwick from the Nerdist podcast, Stanley actually acknowledges Diablo as one of his regrets because he has absolutely no memory of who he is, what makes him special, anything like that. And Stan basically said, you know, if you create a character, it should be able to stick with you. You should be able to remember them. But I think at least in this context, at least in this issue, Diablo made a a reasonably strong villain. I also really like the, the idea of guest and host relationship keeps coming back into play in Avengers with Hercules. I love the idea that these books take these parts of ancient cultures and and mythology and bring them with the characters as they modernize them. I mean, again, comics are in a lot of ways modern mythology. Ancient Greeks had their heroes, they had Achilles, and they had Hercules, and we have Superman, and we have the Avengers. It's a lot of the same concepts, and they perform a lot of the same roles in society. So when they take those ancient characters and update them and bring them forward, it's nice and it's meaningful that they bring parts of the old stories and the old ideas with them to connect us with previous societies, previous cultures, and in a lot of ways, ourselves. Remember, you can find us at AvengersAssembly.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. If you'd like to be a part of the conversation, send your questions and comments to Andrew at AvengersAssembly.com. Next week, we're going to be taking a look at Avengers number 42, The Plan and the Power. All right, hey. All right, good job, guys.
let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day. Have you ever tried shawarma? There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it. <laughs> 